Now you talk about terror. Welcome to the Chris Hedges Report. Dr. Cornell West is the premier standard bearer for the black prophetic tradition, the most important intellectual and spiritual movement in our history. It has given rise to the prophetic voices of Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, E.B. Du Bois, James Baldwin, Richard Wright, Lorraine Hansberry, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, James Cone, Bell Hooks, and others. Rooted in the experience of American racism, capitalist exploitation, and imperialism, this tradition has provided an ongoing critique of our economic, social, and political institutions and beliefs, as well as calling out the country's spiritual bankruptcy. So, Dr. West, I wanted to ask you about America's soul, but then I wondered, does a country have a soul? Um, So I'll let you take it from there. Well, first, I want to begin by saluting you, my dear brother. I want the world to know that I believe you are one of the great prophetic and progressive voices of our time. And I stand in deep solidarity with you, both as brother, as you know, we spent much time together, going to jails together, taught in jails together, broke bread and talked about Dostoevsky and Flaubert and Sartre and Lukash and Du Bois and James Cone. So I just want the world to know I love you, though, brother, you and sister Eunice and your family. But no, I think that when we talk about the soul of a nation, you're talking about what its dominant soul craft is. And a soul craft is a dominant way of life, a mode of being in the world. And and the United States has always had a market-driven way of being in the world. And that its sense of thinking it could it could conquer the world without losing the best of what's in it. We have a great prophetic tradition in the United States. You talked about the black side, but we got the white side of Melville. We got the white white side of, uh, of, of Ann Braden and a Rabbi Heschel or Billy Susana, Edward Zaid and others. But when we look at how commodification, commodification in the form of arms manufacturing, war profiteers, commodification in the form of politicians bought off by big money, legalized bribery, normalized corruption, commodification in the form of our education so that vocation becomes simply profession, so that calling simply become careers, so that education becomes more a matter of schooling, gaining access to a skill to gain money and live large in some vanilla suburb rather than genuine education, which is critical formation, learning how to be a human being and a citizen in such a way that you can be a force for good and beauty and justice. We are in a profound moment of spiritual decadence in the United States. Militarism abroad, grotesque wealth inequality at home, White supremacy, the face of the escalating neo-fascist movement of Trump and others, ecological catastrophe looming, possible nuclear catastrophe with a gangster in Russia able to push the button at any time, and our own gangster in the White House who can push the button at any time, you see. Neoliberal gangsters are not identical with neo-fascist gangsters. Yes, there's differences, but a gangster is someone who was cold, callous, and indifferent to the vulnerable. 
and we can we can make arguments invasions and occupations of Iraq mass incarceration regime siding with Wall Street and crushing the lives of poor and working people in the case of Biden and with Putin of course you just have a matter of massive domination subjugation regimentation and repression within his own Russian context and we just it's just a matter of telling the truth. And that's what you've always tried to do. And that's what I've always tried to do. Neither one of us have a monopoly on truth, but we try to speak the truth because we are in deep solidarity with those friends for known called the wretched of the earth. Is there a period in American history that you think is analogous to where we are now? Well, in some ways, it's it's like the 1890s in which you actually have reactionary, xenophobic, uh, uh, market-driven forces in the driver's seat, what Lenin called the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Workers had no right to organize. Black people were re-subjugated in a vicious way with the neo-slavery after 244 years of slavery. Indigenous peoples with wounded knee more and more attacked, the genocidal effects becoming even more and more apparent. Uh, the railroad strike, 1877, the crushing of the working classes in the name of the bosses, uh, of the marginalizing even more intensely of women who are always marginalized. There are some analogies. The difference is, is that America was a transcontinental empire at that time and was beginning to reach out. It would bring in 8 million people of color in Guam and Philippines and Hawaii and Puerto Rico and, uh, and other places. Whereas now, America, as the largest, the mightiest, the most powerful empire in the history of the world, is in deep internal decay and more and more experiencing the constraints and limitations of its power abroad. I want to go back to that period of the 1890s because it was on the cusp of, as you mentioned, the expansion of America into a, a more traditional world empire. But there was tremendous opposition to that expansion led by figures like Mark Twain and others who I think quite presently understood what it would do. I think they used the word soul, what it would do to the soul of the country. And I think they've been proven right. Perhaps you can comment on that. Oh, you're absolutely right. It, I mean, Mark Twain is our greatest comic writer, and he stands with Tony Morrison and Herbert Melville and William Faulkner and Thomas Pynchon uh, and a few others at the highest level of, of artistic literary achievement in the history of the American empire. He, like William James, deeply anti-imperialist, cutting against the grain. You're absolutely right in that regard. Uh, but he coined the Gilded Age. And by gilded, what he meant was the glitz, the blitz, the obsession with spectacle, the obsession with image, the obsession with celebrity status. He himself was celebrity, critical of celebrity. It's like David Bowie's fame. David Bowie's famous. He got an indictment of fame with that deep fault. That would, that would have impressed George Clinton and Bootsy Collins when that song came out. So it is with Mark Twain. We're living in the second gilded age. You're absolutely right. It's all about glitz and blitz and spectacle and money and status. It's all about brand and not about cause. You and I are fundamentally committed not to any brand. We're committed to a cause, a cause of poor and working people all around the world with deep, deep stress on struggles against white supremacy and male supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, or any ideology that loses sight 
of the humanity of people. It could be disabled, it could be Dalits, it could be Roma, it could be landless peasants. Uh, it could be any human being who's being crushed given a symmetric relation to power. That is a great tradition, but it's a tradition that is such a threat that is usually repressed. You're undergoing ugly censorship, cancellation, attempt to wipe out your own programs, to wipe out your precious words and conversation. That's par for the course in the moment in which war is at the center of the consciousness of a nation. We know truth is always the first casualty in any context of war. And you begin to find out, of course, you know, who, what people are really made of. It's very interesting to see universities that make claims about objectivity in their scholarship. And as soon as the country goes to war, they become major, major cheerleaders and bootlickers of the vanguard who are pr promoting the war. Now, all the resources, all the discourses, all the orientation behind war. We say, well, wait a minute. We're concerned about truth and goodness and beauty. We want to tell the truth across the board. We keep track of the gangsterism, be it Russians, be it Americans, be it Indians, be it Hungarians, whoever, across the board. And that's how they get in trouble, brother. That's why you're in trouble right now, but you're bouncing back. You're bouncing back strong. I want to talk about Max Weber. Uh, Weber in Politics as a Vocation uh, talks about eternal vigilance, uh, that the moment you turn your back, uh, whatever advances you may make, and we talked about the 1890s, certainly a low point, for the working class, uh, the, the reign of terror, Jim and Jane Crow in the South following uh, the collapse of Reconstruction. And yet you did see a resurgence, which was then crushed by Woodrow Wilson, uh, the Espionage Act, the Sedition Act, which were not used against German spies, but were used against radicals. Joe Hill is hanged. Uh, uh, Emma Goldman is deported. There does seem to be this kind of push and pull. Uh, and I, I wondered if you could explain that because we certainly seem at this moment at a low point. We saw the rise of powerful popular movements in the 1960s, the anti-war movement, the, the women's movement, uh, uh, the black power movement. Uh, and, and now it seems like we've just been rolled backwards. Can you talk about that cycle? I think it has something to do with the fact that the most powerful ideology in the modern world, which is nationalism and the allegiance to the nation state and convincing people and citizens to live and die for the nation state. You know, that has sit at the center of so much of how we understand the world. And therefore, those of us who are internationalists, those of us who believe that human beings in Ethiopia and Guatemala and Brazil and Bangladesh and India and Japan and Iran and Turkey are human beings all having the same value, significance, and status. It means we cut radically against the grain. See, when you think of, our, think of class, most workers will die for the flag in the nation state before they die for an international workers' movement. Most black people, no matter all the talk about race and blackness, beautiful thing, that's fine, but most black people where they live would fight for the flag and the nation state before they would fight for blackness. Most women, 
talk about gender all you want. Critiques of patriarchy, very important. They get behind the nation stick. And so it, it, it's very difficult to have, be consistent in your intellectual and your moral and your political practice to create international solidarity in a context in which nationalism is so intense and so powerful, blinding, that generates a whole, you know, a whole host of uh, uh, exclusions and, and, and repression, and censorships and so forth. And, uh, and it is what it is. We have to confront the power of that nationalism, but we have to bear witness to an international solidarity. The names that you mentioned, Du Bois, and we go on and on with the, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s critique of the Vietnam War, is the internationalism, uh, Ella Baker, we can go on. This, that's what is needed now more than ever, and yet it seems to be so weak and so feeble. Uh, I want to talk a, a little bit about the kind of uh, war fever that's gripped the country around the Ukraine. I was, as you know, in Eastern Europe in 1989 as a reporter covering the collapse of the Soviet bloc and the Soviet Union. Uh, we talked about the peace dividend. Uh, we thought uh, very naively that NATO was obsolete. Uh, in fact, NATO has become a very aggressive force. Ask anyone in the Middle East. Uh, it has expanded now uh, throughout uh, Eastern and Central Europe, uh, and uh, w what is that kind of war fever done? And, and, and juxtapose that with the 20 years of war crimes that we have committed uh, in countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, and everywhere else. I mean, I just wish that the mainstream press had spent as much time keeping track of the vicious atrocities visited upon Iraqis and those in Yemen right now, or some of the invasion and occupation of Latin America by U.S. forces as they've done with our precious brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. I think we all recognize war crimes are committed by nation states and empires across the board. And so in our attempt to be consistent, you see, it's a, well, well, wait a minute now, we are in profound solidarity with our precious Ukrainian brothers and sisters. We're in solidarity with our Russian brothers and sisters who have the courage to protest and maybe go to jail for 15 years because we look at the wor world through moral and spiritual lens from the vantage point of the least of these echoes of the 25th chapter of Matthew of poor people and working people. But we also recognize the American empire has no moral authority whatsoever when it comes to the violation of international law, the undercutting of national sovereignties of other countries. Over and over again, we've seen this. And so if, for example, years ago, Gorbachev was promised that there would not be one inch added to the NATO countries, and now 14 are added. If, in fact, there's missiles in Poland and Romania and no missiles in Canada and Mexico, then we have to be very honest in terms of not in any way justifying, excusing the barbaric criminal activities of Putin and the Russian army, 
but recognizing that the United States has no moral status given its history, given its record of doing similar things. And not a mumbling word of the mainstream press, not a mumbling word of one congressman or woman when you look at the situation of our precious Palestinian brothers and sisters in Gaza and the West Bank. How many was it in 50 days? Over 2,000 Palestinians killed, 550 babies. That's more in number than the Ukraine. A Palestinian baby has exactly the same moral status as a Ukrainian baby or any other baby. Jewish baby, precious Palestinian baby, precious. Sounds so simple, but we get in trouble by trying to be consistent, my brother. Well, you're no longer at Harvard because you have moral consistency. Well, I can tell you one thing, that if you are in profound solidarity with Palestinians struggling for decency and dignity and are explicit about it, then you are going to have to pay a cost. There's no doubt about that. That's true at Harvard. It's true at Yale. It's true at Chicago. It's true across the board. It's just the way things are configured these days that there are certain issues that you can't really tell the full truth about yet. Believe me. In the years to come, in the decades to come, people are going to wonder, how could it be that the United States can get so fired up about one section of the world, 100,000 precious Ukrainians admitted to the United States? I give them a standing ovation. Please come. Please come. But what about our Haitians? What about those from other parts of the world, especially those? who are of color, the level of hypocrisy of the neoliberal elites that you've talked about, that Brother Glenn talks about and others, has to be pointed out. Well, it has to be pointed out. It, and it's juxtaposed to the barbaric treatment of the Ukrainians by the Russians. But the neoliberal elites have their own kind of vicious barbaric treatment of those outside of the U.S. border. And mass incarceration regimes, those inside the U.S. borders. Isn't it just a confirmation of the underlying racism uh, that Ukrainians are somehow worthy victims and Palestinians or Yemenis are not? It's both racism, but it's also religion, because you remember in the Bosnian situation, you had Muslims. You right. had a lot of Muslims who looked like white folk. Right. And they were still not treated in the way that they are, given the, their human dignity. And many of us were, as you know, fighting that uh, and, and, and bringing power and pressure to best. But you're right. Deep, deep racism on the one hand and then the anti-Muslim uh, perceptions and practices on the other have to be have to be pointed out. Very much so. You spent your life in the academy. Uh, would you finish Harvard in three years? I don't know how anyone does that. And then would you lead the Thomas Pynchon Book Club uh, when in your spare time? Really, that's all frightening to the rest of us. Um, I want to talk about the academy. Uh, you, of course, went to Princeton. I also want to talk about philosophy because you're trained as a philosopher. This is I mentioned. You mentioned this in the New Yorker. Uh, interview, but you've never taught philosophy. I think that's kind of fascinating uh, on purpose. That was your decision. Uh, but let's talk about what's happened in the academy. 
Yeah, I mean, the academy itself has been so commodified, so bureaucratized, highly specialized, so it's hard to get a sense of the whole. Uh, if you look at the political economy of so many uh, elite universities, you'll see who the donors are. You'll see who the benefactors are. You'll see who provides the money. And it's very difficult when you're tied to uh, uh, corporate elites. It's very difficult when you're tied to government projects. A contract to tell the truth about corporate elites and tell the truth about government. That's just a fact. It's like if you, you know, in the old days when you, you had the Catholic universities tied to the Pope, then it's going to be difficult to have a serious critique of the Pope the way Martin Luther would, for example, or Calvin or Sweetly. Erasmus, of course, a complicated figure. I love Erasmus. He was very critical, but he held on. He stayed within, but he stayed away from the university. The scholasticism, University of Paris. No, no, this is praise of folly. Complaint of peace. Handbook militant Christians. That's the Erasmus that I love. And why is Erasmus important? Because he was someone who, whatever institutional affiliation he had, he was still willing to think for himself. He would stand up and say, Saint Socrates, pray for us. He's talking about a pagan. He said, so what? Socrates is my spiritual comrade as a self-styled Christian. And I think we say the same thing, bell hooks, Buddhists. Oh, I can't, hard to conceive of my work without her. Malcolm X, prophetic Islamic brother, prophetic Muslim. I can't conceive of myself without, without Malcolm X. James Baldwin, agnostic to the core with a deep spirituality. I can't conceive myself as a Christian without James Baldwin. And Becker, one of the great public intellects of the 20th century, Dalit, converted from Hinduism to Buddhism. I can't conceive of myself. I'm still influenced by Gandhi, even though Gandhi, of course, falls so short in terms of dismantling caste. He has a spirituality that still touches me, that a Howard Thurman and a William Stuart Nelson and a Benjamin Mays and a Mordecai Johnson and I'm on Luther King Jr would build on as strategy, tactic, and as way of life for uh, hated people and for black folk. And I'm thinking of James M. Lawson Jr., who, 93 years old, still going strong. New book, Revolutionary Nonviolence. The foreword, you know, is by Angela Davis. Mm. Isn't that interesting? So it's Angela writing for James Lawson, the great freedom fighter after Martin, uh, uh, what he called critical plantation capitalism, is what he talks about, right? Always critical to militarism, Methodist preacher, pastor, loving the people all the way down. Love that about the brother. So you finish at Princeton, you study with the great Sheldon Wool, and I think he was on your uh, doctoral committee. And but you, he was a you, main advisor. You, you go to union, you go to a seminary, uh, and I want you to talk about that. You're trained as a philosopher. I think of you as probably our preeminent moral philosopher, but you don't teach philosophy. So what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, again, you know, the academic department's so narrow, so you should never, we should never confuse and conflate a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, with a professor of philosophy. A professor of philosophy usually is one who engages in an analysis of the professional literature of the guild 
and you can learn much from them as well, but they tend not to have a sense of the whole. They haven't read enough Cicero and Quintilian and Vico where you have to separate the forest from the shining of the nuts and the polishing of the bottom of the trees. You got to get a sense of the whole. You need a synoptic vision and a synecdochic imagination and a synthetic analysis. You can see the relation of parts and parts. So it's almost impossible to do that in most philosophy departments. And I refuse to do it because I know I had a calling. I'm from Glen Elder, Chocolate Side of Sacramento. I'm from Shiloh Baptist Church. We have a sense of the whole. We have a calling. We have a sense of our vocation and mission and purpose. And what is that? To be blues men and women in the life of the mind. We want to be intellectuals the way the musicians are because the musicians are an extension of the community. They have the same spiritual and cultural properties as the very people that you are connected with organically. So when they look at a brother West or they look at a brother Hedges, they say, hmm, just like Coltrane, just like Frank Sinatra, he touches our souls. He empowers us. There's a use and a function in the gifts that he gives that allows us to be more fortified in our living rather than when they see a professor of philosophies. Oh, he's very smart. Very smart indeed. Can't follow much of what he does. But I know he's very smart. Very <laughs> smart. I don't want to just be viewed in that way. No, 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 no. I want whatever wisdom I have, whatever sense of joy quest for truth and beauty I have to be filtered directly into the empowerment of people so they can see more clearly, feel more deeply, and act more courageously before the worms get their bodies. Well, I, I sat in on a lecture you gave at Harvard on Kierkegaard, and I already hold you in extremely high esteem. Uh, but in that lecture hall, I watched you do what pedants cannot do, is you took Kierkegaard and you you brought it, you first of all brought it to Kierkegaard to life, but second of all, you were able to synthesize it in such a way that it immediately became relevant to every single student sitting in that lecture hall. Uh, and I think that really is the definition of a great intellectual. Uh, I wonder if Kierkegaard has a lot to say to us at this particular moment in, in, uh, with American malaise. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, he was dealing with the sense of the absurd. He was dealing with the sense of self-gratification and self-indulgent among the bourgeoisie. And we see that in states among the black bourgeoisie, the white bourgeoisie, the brown bourgeoisie. The obsession with making is making it as opposed to keeping the faith, being connected with the best of the past in order for the future to be very different. Kierkegaard had a sense, something that's very rare for most academicians, of the catastrophic not just the problematic. He wasn't about just solving problems in a managerial way. No, no, no. Catastrophe. Hounds of hell. Organized hatred. Institutionalized greed. Fear. Hypocrisy. Resentment. Envy. That's what Kierkegaard. Marx is the same way. The catastrophe of a capitalist project. Projects out of control. Greed. Profit maximization at any cost leading toward the undercutting of the very conditions for the possibility of the of a healthy planet, let alone the asymmetric relations of power at the workplace where workers are crushed. So it is in Mary, Mary Shelley, the catastrophe of male supremacy, Du Bois, the catastrophe of white supremacy. You see, thinkers like Kierkegaard are concerned with a sense of the whole. 
and how we existentially as concrete human beings in space and time can mobilize spiritual, moral, political resources in order to be forces for good and to co-train. And that's not an academic project. Mm. And given the disciplinary division of knowledge in the professional managerial elite formative sites like universities, it's hard to get a larger sense of the whole. Everybody majors in one thing, you get in one discipline, you don't see the connection of one and the other. And when it comes to act, no, it's just getting a job. You're just fitting in some hierarchy. And the end and aim is what? To make the hierarchy more diverse, to make the hierarchy more inclusive. So you get black folk at the top, black presidents and congressmen and women who run the empire, who accommodate themselves to Wall Street, accommodate themselves to a national security state, accommodate themselves to massive surveillance. Thank, thank God for Brother Julian Assange disclosing U.S. war crimes. Thank God for Brother Ed Snowden. We can go right down the line. You, see. you and I were at, uh, at, at the court case. What, who, what was Chelsea it? Manning. Chelsea Manning. Yeah, yeah. We, we used to drive down at three in the morning. Were you driving? <laughs> we'd drive three in the morning. I'd pick you up and we'd have a good time. We'd have a good time. But we sat right there yeah. behind. That's right. Of what? How is the U.S. government? How's Obama, at that case, the Obama administration going to hide and conceal these vicious war crimes? Isn't it interesting to hear all these voices about war crimes now? Yeah. And it's good. I mean, we ought to talk about Putin's war crime. But of course, the sad thing is, you know, the International Court, the only war crime that they've ever punished anybody is Africans. Can you imagine that? The major victims, black people, African people are the only ones charged. And Yugos so that, Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia, right. Yugoslavia and Liberia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, Yugoslavia too, maybe. But I mean, it's like, good God Almighty. Well, but we can't ever, though, brother, and this is very important. We should never, ever be surprised by evil or paralyzed by despair. We've got to keep engaging in our truth telling and our justice seeking and our joy sharing and our wounded healing and in being love warriors and freedom fighters. And those names that you started this show off with, all you gotta do is ask some Curtis Mayfield and Arisa. <laughs> and they set in the highest standards of moral and spiritual excellence, the how you keep keeping on in the midst of overwhelming despair not allowing the despair to have the last word. That's why you continue to write. I continue to write. That's why you have your show. That's why you continue to speak. And I continue to speak. And they're going to have to crush us below the ground before we stop. That's right. We're going to be faithful unto death. Great. That was the great Dr. Cornell West. I want to thank uh, the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. 